Chapter One of the Yukon Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Yukon Trail by William McLeod Rain. Chapter One Going In. The midnight sun had set, but in a crotch between two snow peaks it had kindled a vast cauldron from which rose a mist of jewels garnet and turquoise topaz and amethyst and opal all swimming in a sea of molten gold the glow of it still clung to the face of the broad yukon as a flush does to the soft wrinkled cheek of a girl just roused from a deep sleep except for a faint murkiness in the air it was still day there was light enough for the four men playing pinochle on the upper deck though the women of their party, gossiping in chairs, grouped near at hand, had at last put aside their embroidery. The girl, who sat by herself at a little distance, held a magazine still open on her lap. If she were not reading, her attitude suggested it was less because of the dusk than that she had surrendered herself to the spell of the mysterious beauty, which for this hour, at least, had transfigured the North to a land all light, and atmosphere and color. Gordon Elliott had taken the boat at Pierre's Portage, fifty miles further down the river. He had come direct from the creeks, and his impressions of the motley pioneer life at the gold diggings were so vivid that he had found an isolated corner of the deck where he could scribble them in a notebook while still fresh. But he had not been too busy to see that the girl in the wicker chair was as much of an outsider as he was. Plainly, this was her first trip in. Gordon was a stranger in the Yukon country, not one likely to be overwelcome when it became known what his mission was. It may have been because he was out of the picture himself that he resented a little the exclusion of the young woman with the magazine. Certainly, she herself gave no evidence of feeling about it. Her long-lashed eyes looked dreamily across the river to the glowing hills beyond. Not once did they turn with any show of interest to the lively party under the awning. From where he was leaning against the deck-house, Elliot could see only a fine chiseled profile shading into a mass of crisp black hair, but some quality in the detachment of her personality stimulated gently his imagination. He wondered who she could be. His work had taken him to frontier camps before, but he could not place her as a type. The best he could do was to guess that she might be the daughter of some territorial official on her way in to join him. A short, thick-set man, who had ridden down on the stage with Elliot to Pierre's portage, drifted along the deck toward him. He wore the careless garb of a mining man in a country which looks first to comfort. "'Bound for Kusiak?' he asked, by the way of opening conversation. "'Yes?' answered Gordon. The miner nodded toward the group under the awning. That bunch lives at Kusiak. They got on at different places the last two or three days. Except Selfridge and his wife. They've been out. I guess you can tell that from hearing her talk. A little woman in red with the snappy black eyes. Uh, she's spilling over with talk about the styles in New York and the cabarets and the new shows that pot-bellied little fellow in the check suit is selfridge he is colby macdonald's man friday 
Elliot took in with a quickened interest the group bound for Kusiak. He had noticed that they monopolized, as a matter of course, the best places on the deck and in the dining-room. They were civil enough to outsiders, but their manner had the unconscious selfishness that often regulates social activities. It excluded from their gaiety everybody that did not belong to the proper set. Yeah, that sort of thing gets my goat, the miner went on sourly. Those women over there have elected themselves society with a capital S. They put on all the airs the 400 do in New York. And who the hell are they anyhow? Wives to a bunch of grafting politicians, mostly. From the casual talk that had floated to him, with its many little allusions punctuating the jolly give-and-take of their repartee, Elliot guessed that their lives had the same background of tennis, dinners, hops, official gossip, and business. They evidently knew one another with the intimacy that comes only to the segment of a small community, shut off largely from the world and forced into close social relations. No doubt they had loaned each other money occasionally, stood by in trouble, and gossiped back and forth about their shortcomings and family skeletons, even as society on the outside does. Well, that's the way of the world, isn't it? Our civilization is built on the group system, suggested Elliot. Eh, maybe so, grumbled the miner. But I hate to see Alaska come to it. Me, I saw this country first in 97. Packed an outfit in over the pass. Every man stood on his own hind legs then. He got there if he was strong. Maybe. He bogged down on the trail good and plenty if he was weak. We didn't have any of the artificial stuff then. A man had to have the gut to stand the gap. Oh, I suppose it was a wild country, Mr. Strong. The little miner's eyes gleamed. Best country in the world. <laughs> we didn't stand for anything that wasn't on a level. It was a poor man's country. <laughs> Wages, $15 a day and plenty of work. Everybody had a chance. Anybody could stake a claim and gamble on his luck. Now the big corporation just slipped in and grabbed the best it ain't a prospector's proposition any more <laughs> instead of faro banks we got savings banks the wide open dance all has quit business in favor of moving pictures <laughs> as i said before we've got society all frontier countries have to come to it <laughs> And the days I'm telling you about that crowd there couldn't have hustled me to fill their bellies three meals. <laughs> Parasites. That's what they are. They're living off of that bunch of roughnecks down there and folks like them. With a wave of his hand, Strong pointed to a group of miners who had boarded the boat with them at Pierre's Portage. There were about a dozen of the men, for the most part husky, heavy-set foreigners. They had been drinking and were in a sullen humor. Elliot gathered from their talk that they had lost their jobs because they had tried to organize an incipient strike in the frozen gulch district. Roughnecks and booze fighters, that's all they are. But they earn their way. Not that I blame MacDonald for firing them, mind you, continued the miner. Were they working for MacDonald? Yep, yep. His superintendent up there was too soft. <laughs> These here Swedes got gay. Mac hit the trail for Frozen Gulch. 
he hammered his big fist into the bread basket of the ringleader and said get <laughs> the fellow's running yet i'll bet <laughs> then mac called the, the men together and read the riot act to him <laughs> he fired this punch on the boat and was out of the camp before you could bat an eye <laughs> it was the cleanest hurry-up job i ever did see from what i've heard about him he must be a remarkable man he's the biggest man in alaska bar none this was a subject that interested gordon elliott very much colby macdonald and his activities had brought him to the country do you mean uh, personally or because he represents the big corporations both his word comes pretty near being law up here not only because he stands for the consolidated but because he's one man from the ground up i ain't any too strong for that new york bunch of capitalists back of mac but i gotta give it to him that he's all there without leaning on anybody i've heard that he's a domineering man rides roughshod over others is that right mr strong he's a bear for getting his own way grinned the little miner if you won't get out of his road he peels your hide off and hangs it up to dry but i can't help liking him he's big every way you take him he'll stand the acid mac will oh, do you mean that he's square honest well, you said two things my friend answered strong dryly he's square if he tells you anything don't worry because he ain't put down his john hancock before a notary he'll see it through to a finish uh, to a fighting finish if he has to <laughs> don't waste any time looking for fat or yellow streaks in mac <laughs> they ain't there nobody ever heard him squeal yet and what's more nobody ever will no wonder men like him but when you say uh, honest <laughs> hell no not the way you define honesty down in the states he's a grabber mac is <laughs> better not leave anything valuable around unless you got it spiked to the floor <laughs> he takes what he wants what does he look like asked gordon oh i don't know strong hesitated while he searched for words to show the picture in his mind big as a house steps out like a buck in the spring blue gray eyes that bore right through you how old <laughs> search me you never think of age when you're looking at him Forty-five, maybe? Uh, Fifty? I, I don't know. Married? No. Hanford Strong nodded in the direction of the Kusiak circle. They say he's going to marry Mrs. Mallory. She's the one with the red hair. It struck young Elliot that the miner was dismissing Mrs. Mallory in too cavalier a fashion. She was the sort of woman at whom men looked twice, and then continue to look while she appears magnificently unaware of it. Her hair was not red, but of a lustrous bronze, amazingly abundant, and dressed in waves with the careful skill of a coiffure. Half-shut, smoldering eyes had met his for an instant at dinner across the table, and had told him she was a woman subtle and complex. Slightest shades of meaning she could convey with a lift of her eyebrow or an intonation of the musical voice. If she was already fencing with the encroaching years, there was little evidence of it in her opulent good looks. She had manifestly specialized in graceful idleness, and was prepared to meet with superb confidence the competition of debutantes. The elusive shadow 
of lost illusions, of knowledge born of experience, was the only betrayal of vanished youth in her equipment. End of chapter 1